Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode five of Both Sides of the Stethoscope. I'm your host, Dr. Colby Salerno. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Aline Gregosian. Hey, everyone. Today, we're excited to welcome on our first guest of the podcast, Dr. Ken Sutha. He is a two-time kidney transplant recipient, and more importantly, he is now a pediatric nephrologist who treats pediatric transplant recipients himself. He has a PhD from Georgia Institute of Technology and Emory University, an MD from Emory University Medicine Medical Scientist Training Program. He went to residency at the University of Washington, where he studied pediatrics, and he did his fellowship in pediatric nephrology at Stanford University. He is now board certified in both pediatrics and pediatric nephrology, and we are very excited to have him on and get to pick his brain about all things nephrology, pediatrics, and being a kidney transplant patient and physician. Thanks. Thanks so much, Colby and uh, Aline, for having me here. It's, it's such an honor to be your first guest. This is uh, really exciting. I've really enjoyed the episodes of the podcast so far. We're really excited to have you. Mostly excited just to ask you like like nerdy nephrology questions. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try my best to answer them. Yeah, and since you listened early on, you know that we have dubbed you and your field the nerdiest field in medicine. I, I concur. <laughs> so my first question for you was to kind of just, as best you can, I know it's uh, personally that I know it started early in life for you. So kind of give us your path, how you ended up getting a kidney transplant. Yeah, so uh, it all started when I was about 10 years old. Uh, I went to see my primary care doctor, my pediatrician. Uh, and for some reason or another, they checked uh, my urine. It's actually not the recommendation to check routinely, um, but they found that I had protein in my urine after a couple repeat tests that was still there. That can happen sometimes with things like nephrotic syndrome, which is typically caused by normal change disease. You may have probably learned about it on your pediatrics rotation or when studying for boards. Uh, oftentimes, kids that have that outgrow it, or uh, at least they'll respond to steroids and then eventually outgrow it. Um, so I was on a course of steroids for a period, but didn't respond to that. So eventually I got a biopsy, uh, which showed that I had FSGS, which uh, is stands for focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, basically a long way of saying that there's scarring of the kidney. Because of that, they eventually were able to put me on some medication to tr basically try to slow the amount of protein that I was losing in my urine and slow the progression of my kidney disease, but ultimately not, st not completely stop it. Uh, and so by the time I was graduating from college, I knew I'd need a transplant or to go on dialysis in order to survive. And then thankfully, my dad uh, was a match and was able to be a living donor for me uh, at the age of 60. And uh, I got my first kidney transplant in my second year of medical school, uh, right before I took uh, step one. That's amazing. Shout out to your hero dad. Um, all transplant donors are, or, or organ donors are heroes in my book. So your dad is definitely now one of them. A living donor is amazing. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And so at this time, uh, did you ever have to go on dialysis or were you able to avoid dialysis? Yeah, no, I was uh, very fortunate that I was able to receive a preemptive transplant. So before needing to start on dialysis, basically when I, as I was progressing through my second year of medical school, I started to experience more and more side effects and symptoms of uh, end-stage kidney disease, uh, started to feel more and more tired, nauseated after eating, even normal things. And then, uh, so ultimately my, my creatinine kept creeping up and up. 
and it was decided that it was time to just go ahead and, and get the transplant. I, I was trying to push it off, of course, trying to be a good student and wait until summer break after my step one, uh, but my body had different plans. And ultimately, that, that was the, the right thing to do, prioritizing my health over just taking the test, and things worked out in the end. Yeah, that's great. And I think we're you know, going to get to some more detailed questions. But while we continue on this timeline, tell us a little bit about then what led to you needing a second kidney transplant. Yeah, so uh, things were pretty good for several years after my first transplant, being a living donor from a, a living related donor from my dad. Uh, I was on pretty minimal immunosuppression and uh, things were pretty good. Uh, however, like many people with transplants, uh, transplant is a treatment and not a cure, and it comes with its own set of side effects and, and issues, particularly related to medications uh, and immunosuppressive medications in particular. Uh, and that was the case for me. I had a lot of issues with different kinds of infections, uh, some as simple as like skin infections from random viruses and uh, other things like that, but also other common infections that are seen in transplant patients uh, from things like CMV and EBV, which in the normal normal population, just cause milder symptoms, sometimes mono, um, but in transplant patients can lead to much more serious and potentially dangerous complications, sometimes even cancer. Uh, because of that, my doctors decided to reduce my immunosuppression to allow my body a chance to try to fight off those viruses. I was never 100% able to completely clear the virus. At that time, the first time it was EVV. So I was at this like level where I had minimal amount of immune suppression to try to allow my body to have some sort of immune system, but not enough to reject my kidney. And it seemed like things were stable at least for a while, but after about a decade, it, I started to develop uh, signs of rejection. So my, I would go in for my routine labs, my creatinine would bump up and I had a biopsy that showed that I had uh, evidence of rejection because I was on such low doses of immunosuppression. If I'm being completely honest, I think there's probably some adherence kind of type things that kind of creeped in there too. As you get further out from transplant, it gets easier to to become a little bit complacent with being like exactly on schedule with taking your medications and et cetera. I know that you talked about this last uh, last episode, how like when you're on like a one once a day regimen and you know you are rushing out the door, sometimes you miss it and you have to kind of try to calculate back how to catch back up on that dose. And, and that was the case for me too. Ultimately, when I had rejection, they put me back on, on the full full doses of immunosuppression, ping pong back and forth a bit with some more issues related to virus, viral infections, uh, CMV this time. And ultimately, despite different treatments that they, they tried to kind of keep my immune system in check, plasmapheresis, rituximab, uh, IVIG, all those kinds of things. Ultimately, I did lose my my first kidney after about a decade and needed to go on dialysis. So as far as medical school and becoming a doctor, was it your diagnosis at the age of 10 that made you want to become a doctor? Or was it later on when you had to get a transplant? Or what exactly was it that influenced you? Yeah, uh, I definitely get asked that question a lot. Uh, it for sure influenced my decision, but I think uh, it was probably more the fact that I had physicians in my family that directly led me into considering a career in medicine, just because having role models of my mom being a, a radiation oncologist and an aunt that's a, an allergy immunologist, uh, just kind of seeing their life and having that front and center in terms of uh, possibilities of careers uh, was what kind of led me down that path. When I was in college, I, I felt like 
I really gravitated towards the sciences and particularly like cell biology and physiology. And I think because of my experience with my own kidney disease, I think I really paid extra attention when it came to renal physiology and, and the way that all the different ion transporters, et cetera, work in the kidney. And that's what I think first really kind of drew me into uh, into being interested in the, the science and how kidneys work. One of my first mentors that I worked with in college was a uh, an MD-PhD, a physician scientist. And I think that's what, what ultimately drove me into the direction of wanting to pursue that as a career path. And when I was in medical school, after I got my first transplant, I did a lot of volunteer work with other people that were waiting for transplants and mentorship programs and at camps for kids with all different kinds of kidney disease and all different kinds of transplants. And I think it was it was really that experience that really made me want to become a pediatrician, uh, seeing the amazing changes in, in, in their lives that happen after for kids that after they get a transplant. And I really enjoy the all the aspects of nephrology in terms of like inpatient, outpatient, uh, ICU and, and, and less acute stuff, transplant, dialysis, pre and post, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's amazing. So being that you were diagnosed at a young age, you must have been going to doctor's appointments a lot with your parents. And it must have been intimidating for those doctors with your mom as a radiation oncologist. But how has kind of what you've been through as a kid helped you in terms of managing not only your patients, but their parents as well being in pediatrics? Yeah, I, I definitely think it, it helps with my empathy in terms of trying to make sure that I'm communicating clearly with both the parents and the children. Uh, about what's going on with them. And it, it helps me in terms of even at the times when I have difficult interactions with parents, reminding myself that we're all on, on the same team. We're all, we all want the same goal of, of what's best for the child and just trying to, to, to come to that understanding of why we may be having disagreements about different things. That, that helps a lot in terms of both the way that I understand what the, the parents and the, and the children are going through, but also in terms of how I communicate with them to see my perspective as well. And a follow-up to that. So like you, I plan on going into the field of my transplanted organ. So I'm going to be going into advanced heart failure and transplant after I finish my fellowship training. How often do you feel you uh, let your patients know that you've had a transplant? Do you feel like it changes your patient-physician relationship at all? And do you think it's been beneficial to be able to tell them that? Yeah, uh, it's not something that I lead with uh, right away, but similar to what both you and Aline mentioned in, in the previous podcast, it definitely helps with the the communication and, and trying to establish a rapport with the patients, being able to share my, my experience. I can definitely see when there are times that patients are going through similar struggles that I've been through, or particularly when parents are struggling with a new diagnosis and having difficulty kind of seeing what what things might look like on the other end of that diagnosis, uh, seeing a future for their for their children, I, I definitely find that it's it's helpful for me to share my own experience and say that you know not to say that like just because I did it you can do it too, but to give them some encouragement to say that there are other people that understand the experiences that you're having and how difficult it is, and that there are ways to to deal with this and to to still learn from these experiences and 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 come out stronger and better. That's really nice. That's basically the way that, you know, me and Kobe have had to deal with it. But I think it's a little bit different for you guys because you're in the field of what, you know, you went through. I mean, I guess with critical care, I kind of see a little bit of everything. So it works. But I just think it's amazing that, you know, you guys are dealing with exactly what you went through, especially you guys both went through it as children or at least, you know, in your teenage years as as a 10 year old. 
But with that being said, so one of the most difficult things, you know, that patients go through is dialysis. And having been through it, is there anything you specifically do with your patients on dialysis? Do you talk them through it? Do you give them any like tips? Do you talk to them about your experiences? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I share with when when patients are having a difficult time, I do share about my own experiences with being on dialysis. Uh, I was fortunate that I, I never had to do hemodialysis. I was on peritoneal dialysis, which is a form of dialysis you can do it at home for 12 hours at night, every every night. Uh, it's a little bit more gentle on the body, but I, I am, of, of course, very familiar with the process of hemodialysis too. Uh, and there are many similar kind of experiences that you have on hemodialysis or, or uh, peritoneal dialysis. I think acknowledging how, how difficult and how like bad the situation can be for people. It's not a fair deal to, to have to be on dialysis. And that, that definitely sucks. And I think acknowledging that uh, and saying that, you know, uh, I understand that this is really difficult for them. And uh, having been there through that same kind of situation, I think is, is really helpful in establishing that baseline uh, with patients. Oftentimes I can then also share like the struggles that I had, you know, even simple things like sticking to my diet and, Avoiding all the different foods that you're not supposed to eat. Uh, avoiding avocados, in, including yes, especially avocados and chocolate and all. Oh the my god! Anybody who knows me when I was on uh, back when I was on dialysis knows that I was horrible with sticking to my diet and ate all kinds of things that I wasn't supposed to eat. But really emphasizing with with patients that you know it's it's about more of a holistic thing. It's trying to do things cold turkey is is really really difficult. And so learning how to do things in moderation where maybe you'll have like a small little piece of, of something to kind of whet your appetite instead of like eating a whole, a whole plate of fries or something can, can often help people to, to deal with those restrictions a lot better. That's so interesting. Also, on top of that, I just realized like this was around training time. So like med school residency, right? When you're on dialysis. Yeah, that's right. So uh, 12 I, hours a night, you have to do this every yeah. day. Yeah, that was not not exactly fun. So uh, essentially, around the time that I knew that I would need to get get a second transplant, I was relisted during my third year of uh, of residency as I was applying for for fellowships. Wow! I, so essentially, I was at a point where I needed to start dialysis sometime in the next like couple of months. But I was also at that point of transitioning and moving for fellowships. So ultimately, we decided to go ahead and put in the PD catheter and start dialysis so that I could get my training uh, before I moved. Um, moved down to California from Seattle. And so essentially I started on uh, peritoneal dialysis right also at the same time that I was moving and starting my pediatric nephrology fellowship. In retrospect, probably not the wisest decision in terms of trying to balance all that. I don't know. I, I feel like part of me at that time, uh, there's part of it is this internalized ableism uh, of like this culture of strength that is so predominant in, in medicine of wanting to like push through and say, you know, prove that you can get through all these different challenges that are put in your way. Right. I was uh, going to ask you about this after, but yes, tell, tell us about that. Yeah, there's, there's definitely, I, I think people that go into medicine, of course, are very self-driven and want to like soldier on through all that we're, we're taught to, you know, do these 24, 28 hour shifts, suck it up whenever we're, we're dealing with health issues and kind of just keep pushing through. Part of it is because, of course, we don't want to put our burden on our, our co-trainees or other people in our program when we have to take time off and, and trying to f- find ways to navigate that. But I think that oftentimes can put undue burden on people. And so it's it's a, a, a delicate balance of like learning when to when to ask for help 
and when to kind of like know what your limits are. I was able to make it through all that. Obviously, I, I finished my fellowship and learned a lot and saw all the different things that I had wanted to see to, to, to gain from my, my training. But there, there probably could have been easy, easier paths to be able to accomplish that and still kind of come out with similar kinds of experiences without having to come in in the middle of the night while also on dialysis, managing calls and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it is really difficult having to deal with all these issues, you know, especially being in training when you feel extra bad because you don't want somebody to work for you and and you know you're weighing you know you don't want to look weak so i know that you started or you know you're part of this thing that you talk about all the time with on twitter you know we do like hashtag docs with disabilities and there's a whole you know new movement about it kind of advocating for us physicians that have these chronic illnesses and how we're supposed to deal with it in this environment so tell us a little bit about that and your work in it, because I'm really interested. I remember when I first got my transplant, like I actually remember like the day after my transplant, everybody like somebody asked me something about like chronic illness. I was like, is this a chronic illness? Like I just I just got my transplant like a couple weeks ago. Like I was, like I like what is this? like what is this transplant? So I didn't even know how to deal with my transplant. So I know you helped me a lot through that. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So the Docs with Disabilities uh, movement is a movement to try to include more people with disabilities in medicine and healthcare. Uh, and that's disabilities broadly, including uh, mobility disabilities, uh, learning disabilities, sensory disabilities, chronic illness, mental health conditions, uh, neurodiversity. Again, as you mentioned, with the thought that people with these lived experiences with the healthcare system bring unique ex experiences and perspectives to medicine that enriches uh, not only the care of patients, but uh, the, that they provide directly, uh, but also the care that all the people that interact with them are able to provide just by seeing kind of what the lived experiences are of people with broadly defined disabilities. Oftentimes, these kinds of conditions are viewed as liabilities. And so, for example, like my training program could have seen, oh, this uh, Ken has, has to be on dialysis. So therefore, he's going to have lots of doctor's appointments and he's going to have dialysis and he may have side effects related to his uh, to his medications, and so therefore won't won't be able to be a good nephrologist. But thankfully, they they took the different approach in seeing that Ken has had this lived experience of growing up with kidney disease. He's been on dialysis, has has had a transplant, and what an amazing set of things that he can bring to his patients in terms of being able to relate to them, and not only to the patients but also my my co fellows and other other faculty within my division, uh, learning from me, seeing what the experience is firsthand uh, of someone who is living with chronic kidney disease, growing through the dialysis and the the transplantation process. And so I think I the whole time that I had chronic kidney disease, growing up up through medical school, residency, etc., I did not just uh, identify myself as being disabled or a part of the disability community. I'll, I thought about it a little bit more when I was on dialysis because you can apply for disability like leave and accommodations and things like that, although I never actually applied for any official accommodations. Um, but it was really after I had my second transplant. One of my colleagues here, uh, Dr. Peter Poulos, he is a faculty in radiology he suffered a spinal cord injury during his internal medicine residency, or sorry, uh, during his gastroenterology uh, fellowship, and then ended up retraining in radiology. He founded this organization here at Stanford called Stanford Medicine Abilities Coalition, which has done a lot of work to try to raise awareness about 
physicians and other healthcare providers with disabilities in combination with a, a student group here called Medical Students with Disability and Chronic Illness. Through getting involved with these organizations, I, I really began to have a broader uh, understanding of what, what disability m- means and the broader, the, the, the diversity within disability, encompassing chronic illness, other kinds of conditions as, as well, and, and now consider myself to be a part of this community. Uh, for me, important things that, that really shifted my perspective is that um, disability isn't a static thing. It can wax and wane in terms of how it affects you. So, for example, for me, my, uh, the impact that my, my chronic kidney disease, my transplant have had on my, my ability to be a physician and train uh, has changed over time. So, obviously, when I was on dialysis, it had much bigger impact and limitations in terms of, of what I could do uh, compared to now with a, a well-functioning kidney. And at the same time, different conditions and, and things that we consider to be disabilities are, are experienced completely differently by different pe- different individuals based on their, their social situation, circumstance, other intersectional uh, identities, et cetera. So again, me having the privilege of being able to do home dialysis, uh, that's what allowed, really allowed me to continue to work full time. Whereas somebody else who has the exact same dialysis dependence and end-stage kidney disease, but for some reason doesn't have the support at home to be able to do to home dialysis or uh, has children that they have to look after and has to, to relate to, has to deal with home childcare, et cetera, uh, and therefore has to go to uh, in-center dialysis. They face so many more different kinds of barriers and things related to their dialysis dependence. And so I think, again, for me, understanding that the experiences that across different kinds of disabilities and conditions the shared experiences and uh, collective power that we have in terms of trying to, to change the system and make medical training uh, a more humane and inclusive environment uh, is super important. And along those lines, considering disability uh, as uh, a dimension of, of diversity even. So again, aspects of someone's experience that uh, should be celebrated and uh, recruited even, because in order to get to where we are, we had to have extra grit and fortitude and like connection to really to, to really push for this career in medicine uh, to not only overcome all the obstacles that are in place for people going to careers in medicine, but also deal with all the medical things on top of that, our own personal medical hoops that we have to jump through with medicines and uh, doctor's appointments and, and, and dealing with ups and downs with our, our, our conditions. So many incredible points and such an amazing thing. You definitely, it's something that that I have to remind myself about all the time that just because my heart transplant went a certain way and just because I'm a heart transplant recipient does not equilibrate, I guess, to the same scenario as anyone else. Um, And they might be going through it a completely different way. And I have to preface that as well when I I tell them, you know, knock on wood, just the fact that mine went so smoothly. Um, And then there's people who deal with a lot of side effects and then they look at me and they're like, oh, you said this would be easy because look at you now. (laughs) And and it doesn't turn out that way. So a follow-up question I had for you about that is given everything that you've done and learned through this process, what would you say to someone out there right now? They're, you know, just graduated college. They want to go into medical school, but they've had an organ transplant or they're immune compromised because of uh, inflammatory bowel disease or rheumatological reasons, or they've battled cancer or they have other disabilities and they're scared about going into medicine because of the rigors of getting it. What would you say to them in terms of trying to to support them through this? 
Yeah, I think if if it's truly what they want, uh, based on what they're interested in and what they what they see as ways that they they want to contribute to the world, uh, I think they should 100% still do it because they are going to bring such a unique uh, and value per, valuable perspective to the field uh, and to their and to their patients. They shouldn't allow whatever their underlying condition or disability is to uh, to hinder them. That's that's not to say that it's not going to be a difficult road. There are many obstacles that are in place for people that have disabilities and other conditions in the medical field in particular. And I think part of the work that we're trying to do is to is to change the system so that uh, instead of seeing the problem being the individual and limitations that they have, refocusing and 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 recognizing that the real limitations and the problems are with the system and making the system work so that it allows people from all different kinds of uh, diverse perspectives and backgrounds to be a part of, of medicine and to, to change the field. I totally agree with you. So Ken, one thing that I've always, that I've wondered, and hopefully I get to do this one day. And to me, the thought of being able to tell a patient that an organ has become available, I know receiving that information was one of the most incredible moments of my life. And I, for me, I remember the nurse that was able to tell me that info do you ever get the opportunity to do that? And is it as incredible as I picture in my brain? Yes, it's amazing. Uh, I've been able to do that. I haven't been the first person to call them, what to tell them to come into the hospital. But uh, when patients have come in after they've gotten the call, I've been able to be there to, to receive them and, and, and to go walk them through the process. And it, it's definitely an, a very emotional and personal experience every time. Uh, because it brings me back to the times that I, I had my kidney transplants and the experience and the, the nervousness, the excitement, the fear, uh, all that mix of, of things. And to, to be able to walk somebody else through that experience is such a privilege and, and such an amazing part of, of my job and what I love about uh, working in transplant. On the flip side of that, I have had unfortunate experiences where I've had to tell people that after they've been called in where the, the, the transplant has been called off. and it, it was, that's always been difficult for me. Um, but even, but especially after I, I experienced that myself, one time when I was waiting for a transplant, I was, I was called into the, to the hospital that they even brought me down to the, the pre-op area, uh, and were ready to put me under. Um, but the, the surgeon eventually came out and said that there was some damage that had happened to the kidney, uh, that I was supposed to receive. And so, uh, the transplant was called off at the last minute. I, I think, Drawing on on those experiences and and being able to talk to people uh, when things don't go go well, I think has been has, has been an even more powerful uh, experience for me in terms of the way that I connect with uh, the patients that are going through that and uh, to understand the real mix of emotions and kind of the roller coaster that happens uh, through this this process. Yeah, I just got chills thinking about you talking about those moments and. Although we've received different organs, it sounds like the emotions are are exactly the same. I, I was actually going to say I got chills too. I remember the exact moment. Oh, <laughs> amazing. So I am going to do just like three or four rapid fire questions just for fun. I'll start with what's your favorite hospital cafeteria food? Oh, uh, when I was in residency, uh, we had like this midnight thing at the county hospital where they would do affogados, like gelato with like a shot of espresso on it. Wow. It was amazing. <laughs> they would That's open up very fancy. Like, right, right at midnight. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, if you had to pick one mentor, alive or dead, I, you probably have many, but just pick one, who would it be? 
One person that has been super impactful in my life uh, was my first transplant coordinator. Her name is Meg Jeffrey. Back when I was at Emory, she was my pre-transplant coordinator before, uh, as I was going through the evaluation process. And we eventually became, after my transplant, we became really good friends uh, through volunteer work at the children's hospital. We did, we, we played bingos with the kids. She had this amazing spirit where she could just like go up to anybody and just talk to them and make friends with almost anybody that she met. Unfortunately, she passed away uh, unexpectedly, and um, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, uh, this was a, this was many years ago now, but her her impact, the spirit that she had, I think I I always try to remind myself in in all of my interactions with people, with my patients, uh, or even just like out and about meeting new people, to to approach everything with openness and and with a warm heart. Oh, I love that. Next question: If you were blood, would you rather be Acidic or basic? <laughs> Wait, I have to be one or the other? Yes, you can't be neutral. Oh, no, I, I can't be neutral. I mean, they're both bad, but like, oh man, you have to choose one bad. Well, I don't want to be basic because <laughs> no, nobody wants to be basic, right? So I guess that that leaves acidic by, by default. I feel you're still better off being basic. <laughs> What's the lowest pH you've ever seen? Oh, uh, are, are we talking in, in, in like compatible with life or, or not? Yes, compatible and, with and life? someone who's alive. Uh, it, it was probably somewhere in the high, high sixes that I can recall off the top of my head. Yeah. Okay. And then the last one I have is what's your favorite potassium rich food? Oh, uh, avocados for sure. I love avocados. <laughs> I think you did answer that one before, but <laughs> you know, now, I mean, we even have to be careful because, you know, ProGraph is like, you know, yeah. potassium sparing and all that. Yeah. So we're, I think initially we were even told how many avocados we could have per day or like bananas. I don't remember the numbers anymore. I just know that I have to be careful with like my avocado intake, which is kind of difficult. Like I love difficult. avocados. Yeah. Yeah. Another story about me being a bad patient. There was one time when I was in, again, when I was in residency, just shortly before I needed to start dialysis, I, for some reason, thought it was a good idea to eat a bunch of uh, sweet potato fries. <laughs> and then the next day, yeah, I, I have, potatoes have a lot of uh, potassium. Yeah, I didn't know this. Yeah, yeah, they do. And sweet potatoes in particular. And I ended up getting some sort of gastro. And I think it was probably a combination of like eating rich potassium foods and then having like this really bad gastro and like, wasting and then like all my electrolytes were all off uh i ended up having to go to the er and i i had like peak t waves and everything and had the whole oh my God. work up the poor like intern that saw me was like oh, okay so these are all the things that i have to order for you now <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh the poor interns that have to take care of us <laughs> peak t waves though you're speaking my language Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. Crazy. I have. I'll, I'll send you a picture of the the EKG. It's like, yeah. I when they when they showed it to me, I was like, oh wow, those are real. <laughs> that's nuts. I think that's all I got for you, Ken. Thank you for answering all of our questions. Yeah. You have to definitely come back and do another episode with us. All right, Ken. So thank you so much for coming uh, to join us today on the podcast. Uh, it was such an incredible time getting to speak with you and and pick your brain about everything. Uh, before we let you go, is there anything specific you wanted to plug, transplant related or otherwise? 
Yeah, I want to give a, a plug for the Transplant Games of America. The next games will be next summer in San Diego. It's this amazing, amazing uh, thing. It's basically like the Olympics for people with transplants. There are uh, people with all different kinds of transplants competing, living donors. Uh, there's also all, all kinds of transplant professionals that go to it, donor families. It's, it's just an, such an amazing and uh, like enriching experience to be around all these other people uh, whose lives have been touched by transplant. And it's a great excuse to start exercising and training. And uh, because of that, I started uh, doing master swim teams. And, and now I, I, I love swimming all the time, uh, something that I never thought that I would do beforehand. So definitely plug for the transplant games for all people, uh, especially those with transplants, but also anybody like peripherally related to transplants, you can all come to. I would go for like social reasons too. I just want to meet everyone. <laughs> yeah, it's they they set the Guinness Book uh, of rec- of world records record for like most transplant patients in like one place Aww, uh, that's at so the last cool. in person one yeah that's awesome it's amazing it's it's really truly amazing to see the, the what people do after transplant yeah it is thank you yay bye, bye Ken thank you again to Dr Ken Sutha for joining us tonight he gave some really good information and we're definitely going to have him back at another time to talk even more about all things transplant and the nerdiest subspecialty of nephrology. <laughs> Remember you can always follow us on uh, at both sides of the stethoscope, both on Twitter and Instagram. And you can always email us at both sides of the stethoscope at gmail.com. Email us with any questions, comments, concerns. We're always going to be here for you guys. Yes, and please subscribe to the podcast, whether on Spotify or Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts. And additionally, please definitely continue to comment and email us questions. Starting with our next episode, we will start addressing them at the end of episodes. See you then.